Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 39th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is every employee and entrepreneur. I'm joined by Michele Zanini, along with Gary Camel, who is on the faculty of the London Business School, has been hailed by the Wall Street Journal as the world's most influential business thinker. Michele is the co-author of Humanocracy, Creating Organizations as Amazing as the People Inside Them. The publisher is Harvard Business Review Press. Michele is a co-founder of the Management Lab, where he helps large organizations become more adaptable, innovative, and engaging places to work. Uh, Michele is an alumnus of McKinsey and Company and the Rand Corporation, with degrees from the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University and the Party Rand Graduate School. Welcome to the show, Michele. Hey, thanks, Dan. So glad to be here. Wonderful. So uh, how about listeners? What is this book about in a nutshell? So, you know, the, the, the book and the reason why we wrote it is that, you know, as 2020 and the early part of 2021 keeps reminding us, uh, you know, the future is less and less an extrapolation of the past. And, you know, as we face up to uh, unprecedented challenges and opportunities, we as a species, as human beings, need organizations that have unprecedented capabilities. And, and the problem that Gary and I saw is, and and our contention is that most organizations are actually not a very resilient, uh, creative, and energetic, certainly not as much of these qualities as the people inside of them. And, and the culprit is the management model that is running most medium to large-scale organizations around the world, one that is based on bureaucratic principles and practices, right? And, and and some believe that bureaucracy is on the wane, you know, that it's headed for the same fate as landline telephone or gas-powered cars or sure, single-use yeah. plastics. But, but the word bureaucracy, like horsepower, even though it sounds to be the relic of a bygone age, is very much with us. And, and, and unless we change that, unless we create organizations that, unlike bureaucracy, which is focused on maximizing compliance, we create organizations that are focused on maximizing contributions, you know, we'll be stuck. And, and we'll have um, individuals who are frustrated and are not able to flourish at work. We'll have organizations that are not as agile, as innovative as they can be. And, and more broadly, we'll have an economy and a society that isn't as dynamic and as productive as, as it can and, and frankly should be. So, so the book is really about uninstalling bureaucracy and, and replacing it with something better. Well, I have to say, I absolutely love this book. I think its heart is in the right place. Its head is in the right place. Uh, this is a book that I think took some some courage. It's a bold book 
because it really is seeking to make a significant change to the status quo. So my first question goes back to bureaucracy. You mentioned that it's innovation phobic. You mentioned that it's soul crushing. And you say that it emotionally disconnects workers, employees. Can you talk about those points? Sure. So, you know, bureaucracy and by, by bureaucracy, I mean, there's, you know, we're not talking about, you know, the typical way people might, 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 you know, think of it, could see of it, which is sort of the DMV or, or, you know, the state department. Uh, and, you know, certainly those are bureaucracies, but we, we refer to a particular ma- model of organization that, you know, goes back to the early uh, uh, 20th century uh, when, uh, you know, the issue and the challenge, the problem that uh, people were facing was creating efficiency at scales, you know, creating, you know, cars that could, you know, like the, the Model T or, uh, or, or other products that were fairly standardized and churning lots of those out and doing so when the, you know, the, um, the, the, you know, the workforce was fairly unskilled, right? And, and so, you know, uh, bureaucracy is all about um, a few diff- important attributes. For instance, it's the fact that you have power that is vested in positions. It's a top-down hierarchy where you know big leaders appoint little leaders, where you know there are staff groups that are uh, setting policy and enforcing it, uh, where you know promotion is the way you build a career. So you, you there's a ladder, and you and people compete for that, and where you know compensation is in a way um, based on your title. Right, as opposed to your value add. Now, you would hope that there's a correlation between the two, but as we explained in the book, that's not necessarily the case. So, yeah. in a system like that, which is you know fine if you are trying, as I mentioned, to solve the problem of efficiency at scale and the environment is very stable, can work fine. And in fact, it did work pretty well, as I said, a hundred years ago. But it, in a world that is you know hypersonic or changes hypersonic. Where you know competitive advantage comes from imagination, intellect, initiative. Um, you know bureaucracy is just not very equ- well equipped to unleash that and 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 spur that uh, 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 for uh, you know among among you know employees and and people that are you know dealing in, in, and working in that kind of an environment. Um, and and so you know the challenge really becomes. How do you get the efficiency, the co- control, and the coordination of bureaucracy, which are still very important, but in a way they're basically table stakes, right? So you need to have that. How do you get that those those attributes, which are still important, but at the same time you also get the you know the resilience, the the, the innovation, and the initiative that comes from models that are more akin to a startup than to you know GM or you know you know Unilever or any like mega corporation that you know has Still, run, is still running with lots of management layers, with big staff groups, and 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 with you know fairly um, constrained um, uh, limits on personal initiative. Sure. So the the title of this episode is "Every Employee an Entrepreneur." Uh, how did you choose that? I mean, how does that help elucidate what the book is about? Well, because you know we believe that you know the, the way. Organizations build uh, um, a resilience advantage, an adaptability advantage, is by making innovation and creativity 
uh, a natural act, something that happens everywhere, not, not something that happens in product development or R&D or in some sort of incubator to the side, but something that is you know, happening all, all the time. And the way you unleash that level of creativity and innovation everywhere is by you know, changing the way employees think of themselves. So they shouldn't no longer be like wage slaves, you know, but but rather entrepreneurs, people that um, have two things that are really, really important and which are often missing. One, they have the autonomy, right, and, and the agency to make pro- positive change happen in the organization and to and to shape the future of the organization. And the second thing that they need to have is the upside. So they need to have skin in the game and also be rewarded for their um for their value add. And, you know, one company that we feature in the book that uh, encompasses, you know, both of these characteristics in, in spades is Hire, which is a uh, Chinese appliance maker. They're the largest appliance maker in the world, actually. In the U.S., they own GE Appliances. They bought them a few years ago. And, you know, the CEO, and we can get into that case if you want, Dan, but the CEO is committed and built a company and has been endeavoring to build a company over the last decade where he says everybody feels like they're they're their own CEO right and if you create that kind of an environment where everybody v- believes they can make a difference and for themselves and the company you unleash an enormous amount of energy and and which eventually translates into a real competitive advantage the, you know they and other companies that that have really are laboring to do this are are phenomenally successful yeah, no, you you have one. I mean, the book not only has its it, the right spirit; it marshals its facts. I mean, the kinds of business improvements this can bring, the the increase in GDP, uh, you know, how well these companies that have taken this path have have done is is really great stuff. So, part of the boldness to me of the book is that it dares to indeed take on the power structure. You just mentioned the CEO at the Chinese company that wants every employee to feel like a CEO. But there are a lot of other companies that aren't going to be like that. So for somebody who's not sitting in the corner suite, but they endorse the spirit and the agenda of this book, how might they begin to percolate these kinds of approaches into that company? What what might be the avenue they could take? Yeah, no, it's it's a very important uh, uh, question, Dan, because, you know, the book has lots and lots of cases of how companies have been able to operate and thrive uh, with a kind of management operating system, if you will, that is quite different from the traditional hierarchical, you know, rule-based kind of a process-based system that, you know, is the feature of most large organizations out there in the world. But, but it's also, um, you know, a lot of the cases have been around for some time and there have been examples for others to emulate. And yet, you know, while the number of companies that are doing this is is growing, it's still a small fraction, and and part of the problem is uh, one of 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 migration. Like, how do you move from, you know, your your you know typical bureaucratic uh, uh, model to to one that is uh, um, that is far less bureaucratic? And you know, there are lots of different reasons for why that uh, may not may not may not happen very very easily. And one is, as you say, that there, are, you know, the, the the people that have done well by bureaucracy, you know, are uh, unlikely to want to get rid of it. They're not going to be very enthusiastic about getting rid of it, right? It's basically like yep. asking Le- LeBron James, you know, who's the, the power forward for the LA Lakers, to 
stop playing basketball and play uh, and play volleyball. Like, you know, he's not going to be very happy, right? <laughs> With that. Yeah, so, or, or, so you, or a dictator in a country not wanting to step down. Exa- yeah, yes. exactly. Exactly. And so, so you have to deal with the, the kind of the power issue. You also have to yep. deal with the practical issue of like, you know, bureaucracy kind of works and it's, 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 it's it, and so you can't just blow it up and, 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 and not know what to replace it with. But the problem with that is that it's also highly complex and interrelated system. It's not like you can just change the way they do budget, you know, a company does budgeting and not change everything else because, you know, it's not as modular as that. And so, and so it is, it is difficult practically to know, like, where do you begin and how do you, how do you uninstall it? But in the whole, in the book, we have some examples of, 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 of ways you can get started. And, you know, the, and the basic idea uh, that your listeners may, uh, you know, I'd like them to, to kind of understand is that, you know, you, you got to think like a, like a hacker and, and by, Hacker, I don't mean the people that steal your credit card information, but rather yep, you yep. Know, the programmers like Linus Torvalds, who uh, you know created Linux, uh, and you know the the way they did that is they didn't ask for anybody's you know they were all very determined to dislodge you know Microsoft and its monopoly on, on an enterprise software, and and Linus Torvalds said, okay, here's the kernel of a code. I want you to help me. Um, build this out, and and over the years, you know, he assembled a community of tens of thousands of programmers who have made uh, Linux a very complicated, very interrelated kind of operating system, which is now powering a lot of the internet and, and, and the like. And and it's it's a process that was emergent. It was collaborative. It was iterative, right? Um, it wasn't. They didn't unveil the the operating system. Uh, all at once. It's built over time. It's become more sophisticated. And we think the process for changing management systems, you know, should be similar. That is, you know, you're not going to have a top-down unveil. You're not going to have someone come with a tablet, you know, the, you know, from Mount Sinai saying, here's exactly the way we are going to, you know, change the way we work. But you rather have going to have an iteration so you, through experimentation. So, you know, the, the idea of ex- running experiments and, and building prototypes um, has become mainstream when it when it when it uh, when it's about business innovation, right? So products or services, we all are familiar with the lean startup uh, methodology and design thinking and all of that, which is great. But somehow, when it comes to management innovation, changing the way we allocate resources, we reward people, the way uh, we set directions and the like, somehow those are are perceived to be things that we cannot change. But, you know, we can. And all of these companies in the book have iterated their models very much in the same way I kind of uh, described Ludus Storvald and his, and his group of uh, colleagues who have worked on Linux. And, and so you got to think very experimentally. So let, let me just give you a, a, an example. We have this in the book and there are lots of others. But let's say, and this comes from a company, a pharma company in Switzerland, uh, where people were getting... Um, really uh, upset about the fact that they had very little control over over certain aspects of of their work life, and and one particular area was expense reporting. You know, which is sort of as as pleasant as uh, as a rug burn, right? In, in most companies, and, <laughs> and and it's a corporate it's a corporate process, and one that might people might think, well, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. But some enterprising folks, mid level managers, said. You know, let's run. You know, we run trials, clinical trials for our pro- for our, for our products, for our compounds. Let's 
run a trial uh, of, of an alternative process. And so the, the idea was um, basically saying, look, uh, we're going to get rid of all kinds of requirements and strictures about where you, what money you can spend on on what and 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 what kind of documentation you need to provide and and, and pre-approvals. You're free to spend whatever you want when you're traveling, right? Uh, but there's a catch: um, all your expenses need to be posted on a site so other people can see them. So the idea was. Let's just give people the ability and the flexibility to make the right, you know, whatever decision they thought was appropriate and how they spend their company's money. But let's also have the accountability. You know, sunshine yeah, is the, the best effect. Yep. The transparency. So, so they ran an experiment where, you know, in in uh, there in a couple of different sites, you know, very small sites, a few hundred people, where they implemented this policy of saying, you know, there's no there's no more policy, but you need to kind of account for your expenses. And that was the treatment group, and then the control group of people that instead, you know, kept uh, with the old system. And then they measured, you know, two things: you know, how much money is the company being, you know, are these people spending, and you know, what is the level of satisfaction and engagement, right? And what 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 they thought, and they ran this for a couple of months. And what they thought uh, would happen at the end of this two month period was that you know the people in the uh, treatment group, the people with, without any constraints, might spend a little bit more. But they would be happier, and you know, and that would be, probably be a good trade-off and more productive. But what they ended up fa- finding is that the people in the treatment group not only were happier, which you know confirmed their hypothesis, but they also spent less. Uh, so, like by pe- by getting rid of the bureaucratic uh, straitjacket that these people were under, um, they ended up being more efficient, which is sort of yeah. kind of the, the opposite of what you expect. And so, this kind of approach. You could take to almost any process in the organization and, and think about how do you how do I run a management experiment on you know on, you know let me give you another example and then we might move on if you'd like but but I think this is an important point right because it's something that you can do without the CEO's sign off and approval because you're not trying to change something for everyone all at once which would be very risky and politically fraught as we said yes but it's yes but but you know let's let's for instance you know um and this you know let's say your unit is going through a strategy process all right so uh and and you want to test the hypothesis which i think is a valid hypothesis that if it, the the direction and the ideas that come through the strategy process would be better and more robust and more and richer if you included more voices as opposed to the old geezers and the consultants that usually you know go through the strategy rigmarole every every year in a kind of a cloistered kind of a, kind of approach and so like one company that we know and we didn't put this in the book but you know we have direct experience with these kinds of things is they decided to have a, a shadow strategy process where instead of having you know so in in addition to the old guard, the executives going through the motion, you know, the same kind of motions as they do every year, they had a group of millennials, you know, up and comers from across the company, go through the same kind of steps and see what kind of ideas and priorities they generated. And you would see the stark difference. And, you know, and the people, you know, further down in the organization with less of this, you know, with, with, you know, who are less um influenced by old kind of thinking and orthodoxy right and have fresher perspectives you know would come up with ideas that would never have been on the radar screen of the of the people at the top and you know and it turns out a lot of those ideas which ended up getting implemented made a huge difference so 
you yeah, know, there's and that things was one, like that was one, yeah, and that was one of my favorite parts of the of the book. In fact, that you know the executives have what I think you call uh, depreciating intellectual capital. Uh, they're not as in step with the time. They they have a mindset that was formed around certain assumptions, and it's those people who are fresh and come in who often come up with the really you know dazzling new insights and approaches. So so that's on the leadership side. I'm also really interested on the manager side because. Uh, you know, when we think of bureaucracy, you know, we pretty obviously will think of middle managers. And you mentioned in the book that uh, the number of middle managers and administrators, in fact, has more than doubled in the last about 30 years or, or more. So what is going to be the fate of those middle managers? Are they going to have new roles? They're going to be phased out. Uh, what happens if the uh, agenda of humanocracy is enacted? What's the fate? What's the opportunities for the middle managers? Yeah. So, and by the way, I just, uh, we just ran the numbers for 2020. The book obviously was long, um, had the, had data up until 2019. But if you look at the December 2020 numbers, employment levels, if you look at managers and administrators, you know, people in, you yep. know, in uh, finance, uh, compliance, HR. So they've taken a hit relative to, you know, the numbers in, in, in February and March. But employment level right now is what it was in those occupations, uh, um, where it was in 2019, October 2019. If you look at everybody else, it's it, the employment level of everybody else is um, is is what it used to be in 2014. <laughs> so basically, the 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 manager managerial ranks have shed uh, fewer people. During the pandemic, than that ever than other occupations, Everybody, which yeah, which which kind of makes sense, right? It's I'm I'm not saying this is particularly, uh, particularly shocking because you know managers are able to work virtually on Zoom. They're not necessarily you know working in re in the on the shop floor on uh, and so yeah. on. So, but but it is kind of shocking that not only has this number gone up, fa- managers and administrators have grown faster than o- the overall labor force of the last. 20 years, but, but, but in a way, the ratio is now higher, highest, higher than it has ever been because other people have lost jobs at a faster clip. So with that, with that said, as kind of a kind of update on the numbers, I would say that, you know, in these companies that we profile in the book, manager, the work of management doesn't go away. What changes though, is that the, the, the managing, the work of managing, you know, so it's less of a noun yep. and more of a verb, is distributed. And so what what people people that are, pl- are playing now middle management roles, you know, uh, end up playing different kinds of roles. I mean, some people might end up being individual contributors. Other people might become team leaders, but team leaders that are, in a way, um, that em- emerge based on their ability to lead and to to uh, create followership as opposed to being appointed or as opposed to seeing climbing the management ladders as the only way to succeed. So, you know, the, the idea is that you, you, you may have the same number of people, but you redeploy uh, their time and their functions so that they, they work on higher value added things. I mean, the, the, a lot of the ma- middle managers we speak to are not necessarily very happy playing the roles that they play. And and let's not forget they are reporting to someone else, so they're they're also being managed, right? And and so uh, in these in, in the kinds of organizations that we profile in the book, 
you know, they get liberated as well. We have a, a whole chapter on Michelin, Dan, uh, where the tire, the second largest tire maker in the world, where they've gone through this process of of empowerment and and where frontline people acquired much more autonomy. And obviously, that means migrating from the from from their supervisor, from the manager, some of the activities that that person would perform. But, you know, with the, a lot of the people that we talked to who would play that kind of uh, you know, supervisory role found themselves to be much more fulfilled, much happier because they were working on things that were more important. You know, so instead of making sure that, you know, so let me give you one example. Um, scheduling used to be something that the, the middle manager would have or the, you know, the supervisor would have to do for the team. Uh, yep. yep. It, 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 staffing, you know, they worked in shifts, twenty-four hours, uh, seven days a week. So they have to kind of manage these shifts within within a team of forty people, and and so that became a task that uh, the team did on its own. You know, it was kind of a self-managed task, and and the the managers like this is you know at the beginning they might have felt like oh I'm losing control, but once they started doing that and they saw that the teams were incredibly capable of managing you know, scheduling, they said, this is fantastic. I, not, I can now work on bigger things like, you know, the strategic plan for my unit or making sure I have the right skills. And, you know, they're like, I'm not getting woken up at 3 a.m. Uh, <laughs> because like no, someone who's working on the, sh- was supposed to show up hasn't shown up and I have a problem I need to fix, you know? So like I sleep better at night and I'm working a bigger thing. So, so the thing that, is is very comforting, I think, and and hopefully bodes well for making this a, a broader transition. Is that you know this can become a a win win. Like everybody can level up as as one of the managers at Michelin uh, point you know put it to us. So with Michelin, which I really enjoyed as one of your examples in the book, uh, you mentioned that they have training programs that were implemented at the factory level, including EQ. I, I don't think everyone was going to associate EQ as being something that becomes part of a factory wide, uh, you know, initiative. How, why, what was the impetus for that? How, how did that benefit the, the factory and, and the company at large? Just was curious if you know yeah. anything more on that. Sure. Well, I mean, what they quickly realized is that, you know, you could ask people to be self-managing and to be collegial as opposed to being told what to do. But, you know, it's like, almost like it's, it's, it's akin to, uh, telling someone who's never played golf okay here's a set of clubs go play golf right there are yeah. skills skills you need to learn to be effective at self-managing and and in particular one of the things they found for frontline employees there was almost this like learn helplessness where they just like were uncomfortable at giving each other feedback pushing back on other people right because they were just always being order takers and so, so they figured that we we need to give people the uh, the confidence and the skills to be effective in a self managing role, and that inc- includes EQ, right? Because you need to be able to learn and 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 uh, understand signals you're getting from your colleagues, from other people, and adjust and 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 accordingly, so that you you can create a productive environment, right? And and, and we see this, by the way, Dan, in all these companies where you have effective self-management at the level of, you know, teams, um, they all go through these kinds of trainings. I mean, my favorite example perhaps is Birthsorg, which is a, um, a, a home care, healthcare company in, in the Netherlands. They're the largest uh, home services provider in the country. They have about 16,000 nurses 
organized in 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 thousands of small teams they have like basically uh no layers between themselves these self-managing teams and the uh and the founder who himself is a nurse and 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 the these teams are all basically trained in the ability to give each other feedback to interpret signals from patients and and colleagues and to deal with conflict where it arises and and you know and that's a really important learning right i, I think and because we we often gravitate to kind of structural solutions or just changing decision rights and 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 we think that if we do that uh, we have solved the problem or we've created a new model that will work but but unless you give people the the tools right and the skill sets to be effective in that kind of environment, you, you, you'll often fail. Yeah, no, I, I also like that example a lot in part because I've done a lot of business stuff in Holland. Uh, so we got just a few minutes left, and I wanted to make sure that we covered at least a little bit of these eight principles of humanocracy. I'm sure they've come up indirectly, maybe rather directly in some of your answers. But is there maybe two of those principles that you haven't had a chance to speak to so far that are important enough that we really want to lay them out before this this uh, conversation ends. Yeah, and I should say uh, maybe before I, I I point to a couple that the 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 book is really organized around a set of of principles because you know we think that what's most important from um, what you learn from the companies we profile is not what they do in the particular but how they think. That is, you yeah. know, there are these co- companies all have slightly different practices, but what really brings, you know, uh, makes them common, uh, more common than than different, is, uh, you know, these sets of values, these sets of mindsets around how work gets organized, and it, and we think that there are seven uh, seven principles that are that are key. Uh, and and may, in the and we start the first one and by the way we have a chapter on each of these principles unpacking it and and providing examples, but in the in a way like probably the cornerstone principles is is ownership, and which is why also back to your question about why do we why why is this episode called everybody an entrepreneur, um, yeah. you know we think that this is like you know the foundation, you know because if if given the chance most of us would rather be owners than than employees right. And not everyone can work in a startup, but uh, as I mentioned with Hire and uh, and other of these uh, companies we have in the book, it's possible to build organizations where every team member has the autonomy and the financial upside that helps them feel like an owner. And and this is critical to unlocking entrepreneurial energy and, and creating an organization that can really outrun the future. And and perhaps Dan, I can give you maybe some quick uh, tips on if you were. To, uh, if you wanted to increase the sense of ownership in your organizations, here are a few suggestions, right? So the first, yeah. start re- by re- uh, redistributing a chunk of your own authority. You know, step back from critical decisions and let your team decide. You know, um, what what should be, what, how should we organize our our work? Uh, what should be our goals for next year? Really, just try to distribute ownership uh, uh, that way. Uh, um, the second, you know, if your company doesn't have a profit sharing plan. Lobby for one, and, and make sure that it's available for every employee. In a, in a good year, profit sharing in a lot of the the companies that we profile is averages uh, you know ten percent of, of compensation or more. The third thing you can do is disaggregate big units into small ones. You know, keep operating units 
to fewer than 50 people and make them feel like little startups. And, and importantly, if you can, give every unit a real PL and minimize corporate overhead allocations and avoid you know, building targets around KPIs, which are often like synthetic and not very useful ways to, to manage the business and make, and make the right trade-offs. So anyway, so that's one principle, uh, Dan, and probably the most important one, uh, because if you don't yep. have that, you don't have many of the others. But uh, you tell me whether uh, you want me to volunteer another or, or, or not. Well, there's, there's one other place I wanted to go to um, because it's very emotionally based. You said you know, to make this stuff succeed, you're going to have to tackle the climate of fear, uh, that these are risk-adverse cultures. And I, and I agree with you. And I think a lot of times they uh, are insulated, as you say, from the outside world. Uh, so it's going to be a real shock to realize they have to justify their existence and compete more. So, so how to deal with fear? Maybe let's we'll end there with the, that's the last question for you. Well, I mean, in most organizations, as you rightly point out, there are penalties for disagreeing with your boss. And, and yeah. at the, at the end, the result is kind of an echo chamber where, and, and you absolutely need to make it safe to dissent. And, um, the, the way you, you you do that, I think, is by um, first of all making the 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 people that are leading, you know, the people that have uh, authority, uh, be really reversible in, in a way, reverse uh, accountable in reverse to the people that they that, that they lead. So you basically you're not quite serving at the pleasure of the team that you're you're leading but they have a lot of input in terms of uh, your success and if you do that then the they're the people that are you know uh, right now uh, otherwise afraid to speak up will definitely tell you uh what they think right because they will no longer fear that feedback to you about improvements and so on be a career limited move. So that would be one thing you do. You'll create reverse accountability and make leadership the, almost a reciprocal of followership. Second thing you you can okay. do is, yeah. Oh, so no, that would no, be number I, one. I, 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 sure. Go ahead. Oh, no, I, I like that a lot. I mean, I remember another thing in the book you had is that sometimes ideas can be brought forward by teams and then everybody in the department or this unit of 50 or smaller gets a chance to to vote. Uh, that way, it's it's transparent. It's got empowerment. Uh, maybe ideas percolate up that weren't the boss's ideas by any stretch of the imagination, but you're not directly challenging that person's authority. That did seem to me a, a very viable way forward. Um, so anyway, it is a it is a fascinating book. It is a bold book. Its heart is in the right place. I, I was so impressed with this book. I, I have to say. Um, so this is this has been our episode. This is number thirty nine, called "Every Employee and Entrepreneur." My guest has been Michele Zanini. He is along with Gary Hamill, the co-authors of "Humanocracy: Creating Organizations as Amazing as the People Inside of Them." Uh, if you want to learn more about this podcast series, you can go to my website. That's sensorylogic.com. If you want to give a review or learn about this particular episode more in depth, uh, you can go to emotionswizard.com, where every Thursday I post a blog related to the podcast series. Finally, I'd like to end every episode with an appropriate epigram. In this case, I chose something from Theodore Levitt, who said, Creativity is thinking up new things. Innovation is doing new things. 
Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Thank you.